This is the Luminate Collective podcast brought to you by AAB Consulting and I'm your host, Shan Parker. In this series, we capture candid conversations on life, change, leadership and the world of business. Beyond their titles, our guests share their life stories, discussing the personal and vulnerable experiences that have contributed to their success. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Amanda Sykes, Academic Design Lead for the University of Glasgow's Transformation Team. Amanda's story is a testament to the power of adapting, learning and growing through change. Get ready to be inspired. Amanda, Hi. thanks so much for sitting down and talking with us today. You're welcome. Um, we're really excited to get into all of this info and all of these experiences that you've had and hear more about your story. Um, we're going to start, though, by you taking us right back. Early career, what you did, where you were, what sort of age you were, because we want to get the timeline in there as well. Okay. So take us back. Fill so I finished sixth form at uh, 18 and a half. <clears throat> and at that point I was living in aspiring up a middle class Sussex and I'd had a very comfortable life, um, ch childhood with my mum and dad, then my mum and stepdad and I decided I would do something good. So uh, I uh, decided to go and do a bit of work for a charity and I, to do some residential work for a charity. So that's what I did for six months. I worked with single homeless adults and I learned that I had had an exceedingly sheltered upbringing um, and that life was much tougher for people than it was had ever been for me. Um, but whilst I was there, I met friends, I made friends, met a community of people. Um, I came out and I decided I would stay because I didn't know what else I was going to do. Theoretically, I'd been going to go to university, but I decided that this was more fun, really. Um, and I started working for uh, a local mencap charity based in just outside, on the, well, on the outskirts of Cambridge. Um, I'm working with people who have what most folk, I guess, would call severe learning difficulties. So people who can't live on their own and who need support with most aspects, if not all aspects of their life, their care, their day-to-day -day living. Um, yeah. And I had a community of people and friends. And so I spent my days at work and my nights partying, mostly. Um, uh, pretty hard some yeah. of the time. And some of that was great. And some of that, with hindsight, probably wasn't, I think. Um, but yeah, so my first career was doing that, really. Um, and I spent 10 years doing that. And I did various jobs within that. So I worked in residential care and then in respite care. Um, and I, I guess I, with hindsight, learned lots from those people, although at the time I think I was too busy playing <laughs> to, uh, to know that, to see the lessons that I learned from the folks that I was working with. And I don't mean my, co I mean my colleagues clearly I learned from, but from the people who have learned difficulties. Yeah. Um, but always really humbled by the things that they felt were really important or really interesting that for me, I might not have noticed really. Um, so I did that for 10 years and, uh, and that was great, but was also intellectually not brilliant for me. Um, not because it wasn't an enjoyable thing to do, but because I wasn't particularly having to think. Um, so I decided that I would do some A-levels at night 
So I did a couple of A-levels at night and then had a, year, a gap year <laughs> where I didn't do anything study-wise, um, but I applied to university then. So, yeah, my 20s were spent working with people with learning difficulties who, who taught me, you know, that actually some socks and a tape for Christmas is, is a good thing and that, you know, being loved by your family is what's really important and that when they, that isn't there, that's really difficult and that, you know, it didn't matter whether it had a brand name on it or not, actually what was important was the small stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I guess I, I grew up, I learned a lot about myself. With hindsight, I had a very poor relationship with alcohol. Um, so I didn't always behave particularly well outside of work, but in a social context. Um, but I was really blessed to have people around me who tolerated me and picked me up and washed me down and, uh, yeah, kept an eye out for me. And I'm really grateful to those people. So, yeah, but I studied and I discovered that I really liked thinking. Mm. I really liked learning. I really liked science. That's what I'd chosen to do with me, with my evenings. So I decided to apply to university and, uh, yeah, found myself embarking on an undergraduate degree in biochemistry at the University of Sussex in the year 2000. Brilliant. There's so much in there. First thing I want to pick your brain on a bit more is coming out when you were 18 and a half as well. <laughs> 19, yeah. 19, you know, how that must, that's a huge change, huge transition. What were the thoughts, feelings behind all of that at that time? Must have been incredibly difficult. It's interesting. People ask you, that as, as somebody who's part of that community, people often say to you, when did you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's generally straight people that ask that question. And my response to straight people is, well, when did you know? Because actually, I don't think it's something that you suddenly go, you wake up one day and you go, oh, it's this. I think I probably always knew that I quite fancied girls. But I lived in aspiring middle class Sussex where you didn't do that. So I had boyfriends. Um, apologies to any of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a teenager, I conformed because that's what I did. And as soon as and once I'd left sixth form that summer before I was going away, um, I spent quite a lot of time with, with a, a friend who was a female who, uh, yeah, who I think I probably had a bit of a crush on. Um, and I'd had crushes on school teachers and I probably had crushes on my peers, although I don't remember that. But um, I'd certainly had a bit of a crush on this woman and she and I were really good pals and pretty inseparable. And for me, it was real confirmation that actually this was much nicer than hanging out with a boy. Um but it wasn't until I left home that I felt able to come out because I was in a different situation, surrounded by different people who accepted me for how I presented myself to them rather than the history that they knew about me. You know, they hadn't known me since I was 12 or two or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and I think it helped that some of the people that I were in that initial group of people that I met, mm -hmm. some of them had come out too. So that was also helpful because it meant that I could see that it was possible to do. Um, and I think, I think people really need that. You really need to be able to see in somebody else that the thing that you think you might do or be or want is possible because it's hard to be the trailblazer. I think it's easier to follow in somebody else's footsteps. And now I look back and realize that, you know, I stand on the shoulders of the, the, some of the most incredible women who stand on the shoulders of some of the most incredible women. And we do that with the men who also came out too, right? The people who, 
you know, you stood up and were counted. And so for me, it's it's people who are still alive, like Ian McKellen, who started Stonewall, for example. You know, and the work that they did in the beginning, all of that stuff paved the way for people like me. Um, and I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't have been able to come out and to be who I am in the same way without that. Do you know all the women who were at Greenham Common, right? Um, and some of the women that I met then were women who had been at Greenham Common. So, you know, stand on shoulders of giants, right? And I was really privileged and lucky to be able to do that. And to be in an environment where people just went, all right, I don't care, do your job, hang out, whatever, yeah. it's fine. I ha I remember having lots of fun and lots of community and um, being really supported just to be able to be at a point when, you know, it wasn't always easy being out at the end of the 80s, the early 90s, that, you know, we, we took some abuse. Um, we had some fairly dodgy encounters, um, but we all kind of rallied around each other, pulled through and carried on because that's what you did. Are you still in um, touch with people that you were um, friendly with back then? Are you still in touch with no, them? No, not really. Yeah. I'm not some. I'm not very good at keeping in touch. We moved a lot. We've yeah. always I've I moved a lot, and I think that kind of uprooted and being somewhere new, you kind of have. I I have. I was told to always kind of say, you know, what? Where am I today? What am I doing today? Let's make the best of today. You can't change what's happened. You need to do what's in front of you. Um, and it will be all right. You just need to, to figure out how to get to that point. Um, and so I didn't stay in touch really with people I was at school with. I didn't stay in touch really with people I knew from, from that point in my life. Um, I, am, I, I have a very good friend um, who I met then and she and I are still in touch and she was an usherette at our wedding. Oh, wow. And I have a... My my second brother, he's not my brother, um, who I've known since I was 12 and he was five or six. Um, and he and I uh, are in contact every day. So I have a couple of people I'm still in touch with from my childhood and then from my teenage, well, from my 20s, but mostly not. Um, it also works both ways though, right? You sure, know, it's, sure. But I also, um, I'm conscious that a lot of that's probably my doing. Um, and not not because those weren't, they weren't great people. But just because that's kind of how it worked for me. I, yeah. I, I left, I moved somewhere different and I started again. And, and so here we are. So you talked about life in your 20s and yeah. how that was a bit up and down all over the place, but overall brilliant. Yeah. Loads of great learning experiences. Talk yeah. to us a bit about, about that. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, my 20s were fabulous, right? I left home, I came out, I made groups of friends that I, you know, we we all kind of, there was a big group of us who all knew each other and we had different friendships within that that came and went over a period of time, um, which I assume is entirely normal. Um, certainly was entirely normal for us. Uh, almost exclusively lesbians, um, a handful of gay men, a handful of folk who were straight, but as a community we were, you know, we hung out, we did stuff. Um you know, there are a bunch of Texas albums that take me back to my 20s that I still play really loudly. I'm really sorry, Charlene Spiteri. Um, <laughs> but just brilliant, right? Um, you know, and I, I can turn those on and I can still feel like I'm 22, 23. The sun's streaming through the window of a shared rented house, dancing my butt off in the middle of summer, all on my own, singing at the top of my voice, right? Really happy stuff. Um, and we played hard and we partied hard. And for me, I drank a lot. Um, probably, you know, in the pub, the same as everybody else, but I kind of kept going. I kind of didn't know when to turn, turn that off. Um, 
So the good things were that there was this big community and we did all of these things together and we played really hard and we had fun and I loved to dance to music. So we'd go dancing when there were options to do that and you know, we'd hang out and eat together and we'd sit around and put the world to rights and drink tea and eat toast and, you know, all the stuff. I don't know. That was what we did in our 20s. I assume that's what most folk do in their 20s. I think the only thing I look back on is that I kind of didn't know when to stop drinking. I didn't know when to say, do you know what, actually, I've had enough now. Let me switch to something that isn't booze. Um, and I think I probably didn't behave well to people. In fact, I'm certain I didn't behave well to some people at points in my 20s. And I guess my regret is not, not necessarily that I drank as much as I did, although I'm sure my body would prefer that I hadn't. <laughs> um, but just that I didn't behave in a way that now I can look back at and be proud of sometimes. I assume that I wasn't dreadful. I assume if I'd been dreadful, I'd have been ostracised and I wasn't. I had friends um, and had some really great times. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's you know, I think if I, I, I kind of wish I'd learned how to, to stop before I got to the point where I don't remember what I did or what I said or I did things that I look back at and think that probably wasn't the, the best thing that you could have done. Um but I also know I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't done the things I'd done up to this point, you know? Like, would I go back and talk to my 18-year-old self and say, go to university now and don't drink? Well, yes, perhaps, because then I could have had a different life and a different career, but I wouldn't be me. Yeah. And I look in the mirror these days and I'm all right with that, right? I looked in the mirror in my 20s. Well, I didn't look in the mirror very much in that kind of, in a reflective kind of way, mm -hmm. rather than a looking at my hair. Clearly that was important. Um <laughs> But, you know, I I guess now I think I'm a different person and I behave differently and I'm, I hope I behave well towards other people as much as possible. I want to talk a bit more about the, um, what we class as your bookmark moment, this moment in time where you decided, you know, you could have done one thing, but you chose to do the other. And that then influenced the path that you took and where you've kind of ended up today. Um, it's probably going to be around the whole going back to uni mm -hmm. at the age that you were, yeah. uh, being slightly older. I can relate to that kind of. I was in a similar situation. You know, you feel like you're the bit of the, the older person in the group. Uh -huh. But then in the same vein, you come to that, learning with having had lived experience and I think that gives a different perspective on the the class yeah. you're in the topics you're studying yeah. all the rest of it um talk to us a bit about that and kind of that whole process of change that you went through why did you make the decision to go what was, was it that you bored. felt yeah you felt you needed something more I was so so I mean I said to you before right there was always this expectation that I would leave home mm. yeah I was I was always supposed I was always going to leave home it was an expectation that I would go I was probably always going to go into higher education that yeah. was the expectation I had a place to go and then dingied it because <laughs> I was too busy playing pool and getting drunk and all of the other things that went <laughs> along with that um so but I was I was at, by, the, by the time I, I decided to think about studying, a friend of mine at that time had decided to uh, to go and train as a social worker. I was going to university to do that. And I was really conscious that I'd always kind of been meant to go or meant to go to university and hadn't done it. And I was pretty stuck in a rut. I couldn't see. I'm not I'm not hugely ambitious. And I'm not driven by money. I mean, I, you know, it's nice to have money, right? I don't, I don't want to not have it. But 
but I don't have a drive for that. I don't have a competitive drive particularly. I'm much more driven by service to other people, I think. Um, and that sounds very grand and I don't mean it to. I, I, I don't know. I really don't mean it to. But it, So I, I was really struggling to work out what would I do with the rest of my life. I was 25, 26, 27. Nothing was changing. At some point you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. And I saw people around me making changes and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was working in respite care. I was working in a pub. Those two things took up a lot of my time, but I was bored. My brain was bored and I needed to think. I needed to do something that intellectually I found stimulating because otherwise I think I'd probably ended up just at the bottom of a bottle, to be quite frank. I mean, I, I don't think I knew that then, but I look back now and I probably would have done. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just... I was curious. I've always been curious. And I think I hadn't allowed myself to be curious for quite a while. Um, and I decided I would give it a shot. Like if you do an A-level at night, what's the worst that happens? You don't pass. Well, you don't sit the exam. You don't finish the classes. It doesn't matter. You pay your money because it's an evening class, right? And I did it and I loved it. And so I think that supported my idea that I might like to do something at university and I'd always found science really easy at school. I mean, not physics. Turns out not chemistry. But, you know, the, the kind of... It had been straightforward. It had been logical. It had been simple. It, it wasn't challenging. I mean, it was interesting and there were things that were difficult to grasp. But once I'd got them, they were fine. Um, I think if somebody suggested I go and do a, I don't know, philosophy course, I might really have struggled because that would have made me think, try and... I would have struggled to think in that way, I think. Um but once I'd done that A-level, it kind of became really clear that actually I needed to think, I needed to learn and I needed to change. Um, and yeah, and wanting to understand how things worked the way that they did was what prompted me, I think, to end up doing biochemistry. And it was a degree I'd heard about. Yeah. Right. I knew somebody else who'd done a biochemistry undergraduate degree a number of years before. And I, so I understood kind of what that meant. And I thought it sounded cool. It does sound cool. got a biochemistry degree. Even now, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and it's because the subject's cool, right? Yeah. But it's, you know, yeah. I think it, it's really fascinating to, to like, to understand all the stuff that goes on in one cell. Yeah. And it's happening in every cell in your body. It's amazing. Anyway. Yeah. We could go on a tangent. Yeah. We could really could. Um Do you think that having the work on the side helped in terms of the academic journey? How did that enhance what you were doing at uni, also having this sort of separate or second life, I suppose you could call it, in terms of a job outside of studying? Mm, well, I think I, I think I was really focused on doing my best at university because I had given up a job and a career and a life and a lifestyle and a, a community. Uh, that I'd had in Cambridge. I'd, I'd moved, it's 200 miles, but it's 200 miles, right? Um, so I was really clear that I was going to university not to learn about life and grow up because I'd done that bit, but I was going to university to learn and to study and to hopefully do something else with it. I didn't know what I was going to do when I'd finished. I had no idea. Um, uh, I kind of thought I wanted to work on on HIV because, you know, there was there were the effects of, the end of the effects of kind of, the big HIV stuff happening at, at the time that I kind of came out. So the end of the 80s, people were still dying, just not in, in as vast set of numbers as they had been. 
Um, so I had this kind of idea that I might want to go and do something with viruses and HIV and cure the world. Um, <laughs> but I worked because financially it was impossible really for me not to, but also because I had enjoyed that work. And if I was going to have to work, I might as well do something that I had enjoyed in the past mm-hmm. without having the kind of political pressure that, that, that you might have as an employee of a particular place. Um, and I got to work with some amazing people who have learning difficulties who taught me to just not take things quite so seriously, yeah. really. Um, and that there was, you know, there was much fun to be had mm. um, doing other things. Great uh, lessons. And also, and I can tell that that's something that's kind of um, carried with you. Like you're very much that type of a person that seems to have had those lessons back then and still live, live those lessons today. The experience of being at uni then, so being a slightly mature student. Slightly mature. I was 30 and they were 18. (laughs) Let's just get out there. Yeah. How was that? That's, you know, it's an unusual dynamic perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about that. um, So I chose to live in university accommodation, but not on campus. And I think that was a really smart decision because I think living on campus with a bunch of folk who've just left home who are trying to work out how they do things might have been a bit tricky. Um. But I was really lucky to be in classes with people who were not just interested in learning about being adults, but also interested in getting a degree because they could do something with it. So, and with some really smart people who could help me when I got stuck, but also who I could talk with about things when they got stuck too. And that was nice. Um, And they were... As a group, they were exceedingly kind to me. They let me tag along with them. They were a bunch of 18, 19 year olds who were just discovering the world. And they let me hang out with them, certainly on campus when we were in uni and occasionally off campus when I was free and they were whatever. Um, And, you know, once a semester, they'd take me clubbing, which was great. Um, Not so good for my my head the next day. They were all much better at that than me by that point. But um, yeah. They, the first time they took me clubbing, they took me to a club. We had an 80s night. So, of course, that was my teenage years. So I knew all the words and all the music. And one of them said, wow, you can dance. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm 30, not 300. <laughs> this is all good. Um, and it was great, right? They were they were a really nice bunch of smart folk who at that point were, you know, the age difference between us was was much more obvious than it would be now. So now these are these are folk who are all... 40, 41, 42. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they've changed careers and two of them are medics. And, you know, they're all doing, they're doing all sorts of stuff, right? But, um, yeah, it was great. It was great. And they they were really kind to the old the older person in the, the class. I think I also wasn't too annoying. <laughs> so I don't think I tried to tell them how to live. I just tried to help them think about, you know, this thing that I understood that they didn't or got them to help me think about the things that they understood that I didn't. And it it was definitely two ways. You said something interesting there that if you were to um, talk to your 18 year old self, would you give yourself, you know, different direction? And you probably wouldn't. Right. But what I find funny is um, if there was somebody who's in their 20s right now who came and asked you, Amanda, you know, this is what I'm doing with my life. I'm having a great time, but I don't really know where I'm going. I don't really know what I'm doing from here. What what would you say to them in that moment? Yeah. So I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up because I, yeah, 53 this year, not grown up yet. Um, But for me, I think I always, there. there's always opportunity. And I guess it depends what drives you, what interests you. 
but I kind of worked out that what I needed to do was the stuff that made made my heart sing, right, for want of a much less vomity expression. <laughs> uh, but the stuff that made me say, actually, this is interesting and I, I can wake up in the morning and say, at least some days in the week, I'm really interested in this, I want to see what happens. I want to understand, I want to help, I want to change, I want to, you know. And if it's that, that what makes your heart sing is, I don't know, going scuba diving at weekends, then find a job that allows you to go scuba diving at weekends. Now, most people's, I guess, the sensible advice is get a good job with a good pension. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think if anybody had given me that advice when I was 18, 22, I'd probably have said thanks very much and walked in the opposite direction. Yeah. And actually, for me, it's about finding the thing that does it for you and then doing that thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be the burning passion of your life, but something that makes you say, I don't mind getting up in the morning to go to work or even actually I'm quite excited to get up in the morning and go to work. Because um, you've got to go to work to earn money to pay for, unless you're really lucky. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, and most of us aren't, then at least find something that doesn't feel too dreadful when you get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And if you know what you're motivated by, go for it. And if you don't, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Just hang in there. And when you see an opportunity to take a deep breath, because the worst that happens is it doesn't work out and you're still doing the job you were doing before. And try not to drink so much, I guess. Like, look after your kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get that on a T-shirt, please? <laughs> so good. Um... So what happened after that? After uni, what was next? Um... So it turns out that academically I'm all right. Um, or at least I was academically all right with biochemistry. Uh, I shouldn't think I would have been had I done philosophy, right? I mean, you know. Uh, and I was doing well and I was getting good grades and that's because I was, you know, I'd given up my life and my job and if you're going to do that, you need to make the investment. So I'd studied hard and I still had this thing in my head that I might want to go and cure the world of HIV, right? So um, I started talking to people about what I might do and a couple of folk who taught me suggested I might do a PhD. Um, and I had always assumed that you had to do a master's degree before you could do a PhD and that's not true. But I didn't know that. Um, well, it turns out that that's good because you have to pay to do a master's degree and I wouldn't have been able to afford to do that because I needed to work um, to live. So, but for a PhD, you get a, a stipend, which is <clears throat> very small. Um, but yeah, a stipend to live on. So, you know, that was good. So I started looking at PhD opportunities. Um, and the guy that I did my kind of undergraduate project with offered me a, a PhD with him, which was really kind. And he's an amazing guy who's super, super smart. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to look at viruses. I had this thing about viruses. Um, so I applied for a, I went to talk to people all over the place and I applied for PhDs in a bunch of places. Um, but decided that I would move, I'm going to move to Scotland <laughs> um, for, for a bunch of reasons that, that are kind of actually quite unimportant. But um, uh, now, they weren't at the time clearly, but now. Um, so I ended up, Anyway, to cut a long story short, I ended up working uh, with a guy um, called Roger Everett, who is now retired, um, and working on herpes uh, to do a PhD. So, yeah, working on 
a virus that actually we know quite a lot about and we know kind of know how it works, um, but there's always more to learn, right? Uh, yeah, so I ended up doing a PhD in virology and not curing the world of HIV, actually, uh, because at that point HIV PhDs were super competitive. Okay. Um, and I wasn't the right fit or they weren't the right fit for me or whatever. Didn't happen. And that was fine. I almost worked with somebody who was at Dundee looking at RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, um, but didn't do that in the end. Ended up in Glasgow working at what was then the MRC virology unit on herpes. Was it a majority female dynamic at that yeah. time? Um, I think, you know, you know yourself, especially at that age, within that age group, mm -hmm. women generally could all at some point go through, whether it's perimenopause, menopause, sure. all that type of thing. I'm interested in your perspective of how that all worked out and being a part of a all-female team at that age in life. Yeah. If that influenced how things were done and um I don't know. I certainly um um I wasn't at, at that point then, but mm -hmm. I saw that in women around me. Mm -hmm. Um I think it was something we still didn't talk about. I think um Davina McCall has done wonders yeah. for the world of menopause and perimenopause. Um but I think it was interesting for me to be around women who were ten years older than me and 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 not not just in that small group, but actually it, with the, with other women I worked with across the university who were in that age group, and and hearing them talk about their experiences of of, of perimenopause and menopause, um, and how that impacted on how they were able to work and function, and then I think I forgot, right? Because <laughs> uh, I do that too, right? If a lesson is important and I remember it at the time, then great, and then. It's not until later when you need the lesson that you suddenly go, oh, wait a minute, I should have remembered that because if I'd remembered that, then three years ago, I would have done something different. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, my my kind of story around that starts a bit later. Also, at some point in the middle of that journey, probably coinciding around with COVID too and lockdown, I also hit perimenopause. Um, except that because we went into lockdown, because some of the work that I did at that point was about helping helping other people to help the university to switch online. So the transformation team were involved in some of that kind of in the background doing the support work. And it was brilliant to, to be able, you know, a real privilege to be able to be involved in that work. I, um, it was an awful time um, for lots of people. And I think I saw that with Gwen. Gwen was working in A&E at that point. So I saw that side of it, but I also had the privilege of being able to help the university do some stuff. Um, but also I didn't leave the house and I didn't see anybody apart from Gwen when she came back from work, um, as, as everybody else was in the same situation, yeah. of course. Um, and I think I slowly kind of slid into not really caring about very much. I mean, you know, showing up for work and doing my job, but I didn't really care and I didn't really want to go anywhere and I didn't really want to go out. And I assumed it was all kind of COVID related. And I kind of just kind of felt like I kind of faded. I think I said before, fade to grey. I kind of just faded, like the colour kind of washed out of my life, really. So nothing was wrong with my life. Nothing was bad about it. Um, I just didn't have any oomph anymore. And I've 
got a fair bit of oomph. Um, and I really like being alive. Like, I, you know, if I could live forever, I'd live forever. I mean, not if my body fell apart, but, <laughs> do you know, like 107 seems like a decent, decent time, as long as I can still go to the loo on my own. Um, or have really good incontinence pants. I don't know. I don't mind. Either or is a you know, option. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, tech will have advanced by then. We'll be fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just lost my oomph. I lost my zest. I lost my... And I was having hot flushes, right? But I, like, you know, something that lots of women get at that point. Um and I'd be awake five or six times in the night, but I'd got to the point where I'd kind of vaguely stir, throw the duvet off, cool down, pull the duvet back on because I'd got cold. And that would happen four, five, six times in the night. And so I think I thought I was just tired because I wasn't getting proper sleep. Um, and then, and work was fine. Occasionally it was difficult to think, but mostly work was all right. And because I wasn't going anywhere, it didn't matter. And then got to a point where I suddenly realised that actually I couldn't really leave the house because I needed to be by a toilet. Um, and that I was kind of uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable, and I needed to do something about it. So I called my GP. And at that point, we were going to have telephone consulta consultations. And I asked her, um, I was really specific about what I wanted and she said, have you ever thought about HRT? And I was like, well, why would I do that? And she's like, well, talk me through what's going on for you. And I started to tell her. Suddenly realised there was this whole list. So like my joints hurt. And yeah, I was kind of, um, I was itchy a lot, even though there was nothing to be itchy for. And um, yeah, hot flushes day and night, but particularly at night. And, you know, and so the list went on. So I think we could try, why don't you want HRT? And I said, because if I go on it, I have to come off it at some point and then I have to go through all of this anyway. And she laughed gently and said, the reason that this is so bad is not because your hormone levels are, are going, it's because your hormone levels come and go. So it's not a gentle decline, it's that you have peaks and troughs and those peaks and troughs are the reason that you experience all of these symptoms and they're so difficult. Why don't you try HRT? So I said, all right. <laughs> um, and I spoke to my boss at that point and said to him, listen, I appreciate this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation for you, but you need to know that I'm struggling with menopausal symptoms and I'm doing something about it, but I need you to know just in case either I'm not doing particularly well or I'm a bit weird in the next however long. And I also, I have sisters, so I decided I would make a video for them as I went through this process. I'd make little videos. Um, so, uh, I went, I got picked up my prescription. I came home. I made a video for my sister saying, here's my, I've got this patch and I'm going to put it on now. And then I'll make another video. And uh, I put the patch on and I came and I put the patch on and you know, the patch is on. Great. And the next day I woke up and a friend of mine had said, you'll feel better in 24 hours. And I woke up the next day and felt exactly the same. And I was really disappointed and also really cross with myself for believing her that it would be this miracle cure. And I woke up the next day and thought, I feel a bit different. And I woke up the next day and found myself singing and dancing in my kitchen and realised that I hadn't done that for I don't know how long. I just got chills. And I, I made, 
and I made videos, right, every day. And uh, so in my family, because there are a bunch of us, um, I'm major and my, one of my sisters is minor. It's a ridiculous family thing. But anyway, so I would do um, a bit like the, the Star Trek star. Yeah. So I would do Major's Update. And the video of me three days later, I my skin looks different. My, my eyes look different. My tone is different. Everything is just completely different. And I feel like me again. And that's not to say that it's all been easy, right? So there have been points where things have got a bit tricky or... Um, you know, and I've been back to my GP and I've, I've, so I've increased the HRT that I'm on. Um, I had to go and have a scan because I had some bleeding that I shouldn't have had. Actually, that's absolutely fine. And it happens with some women, so that's okay. But it hasn't all been plain sailing. It's not just that I put patches on and it was perfect. But I will fight to the death to do this for the rest of my life, even if there is an increased risk of, there's a, so there's a tiny increased risk of breast cancer from HRT. It's tiny, but there is a risk. Um, but I would rather live for 10 years feeling like this. I mean, I know I said I want to live to 107, right? So that's 54 years. 54 years feeling like this? Absolutely. 54 years feeling like I felt before? Absolutely not. And when I talked about fading to grey, do you know, it was really interesting. So I'm wearing blue. I always wore blue or grey. I've got yellow shoes on. It just wouldn't have happened. Um, I now have a red coat. It wouldn't have happened. I want colour in my life. I don't want everything to be beige. That doesn't mean I want my house to be bright red or anything like that. That's not what I mean. But, <laughs> but all of a sudden, this kind of desire to be alive and doing um, is back. I'm you know, I've started going back to the gym and that's inspired entirely by my wife because she's amazing. But, you know, during COVID, if that had been an option, I'd have said, no, you're all right. You go. I'm, I'm, I'm all fine. Mm. Um, the only thing I think that's difficult for me still is that I struggle to drive on motorways. I mean, no, that's absolutely valid. It's so intense. <laughs> <laughs> but motorway driving, so driving is something that was really important to me. I didn't learn to drive until a bit later. That seems to be a bit of a thing in my life, right? I do things a bit later than most folk. Um, but it was because I didn't need to drive before then. And it was expensive and, you know, I've never had a lot of money, certainly not disposable income, and particularly in my 20s because I spent most of it on booze. <clears throat> so, uh, and driving with a hangover is not something you should do either because you're probably still drunk, or at least in my case, I was probably still drunk. So it was probably all good. Um, but I love driving. And motorway driving is something that, uh, when you live in this city, is part of what you do to get anywhere. Um, when you live in in the south, it's part of what you do to get anywhere, because you drive up the motorway to London, round the M25, and off wherever you need to go. When you live in Cambridge, actually, there's a massive A road. It's not a motorway, but it might as well be a motorway. Um and I used to really like getting on the motorway and driving very slightly over the speed limit, but not a lot, I promise. Um, you know, like hitting 70, 71, 72 down in the sun and going for it. And now I find overtaking on the motorway really difficult. And that's only since menopause. Um, and it's very frustrating. And for a while I didn't tell anybody about it because I was really ashamed, actually that this thing that I used to love and was really good at, now I can't do. And I've always been a pretty shit passenger. Um, but actually now I'm quite frightened as a passenger sometimes um, because I'm not in control. But when I'm behind the wheel now, I can't do it either. And I find that really difficult. Um, so I'm practising. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
But it's interesting, actually, the number of people who... So I, I, I think what I experience are panic attacks. Okay. I've never had a panic attack that I was aware of before in my life. Um, but this sudden absolute fear of overtaking a lorry that's come pretty much out of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> and that's still really difficult. That's still a difficult part of menopause for me. But the rest of it now, HRT, amazing. Like I, I will not go back. I will be like one. My mum's eldest sister is in her 80s and still has HRT and I will do exactly what she did. If, if Jane can do it, I can do it. And I will fight you. <laughs> Not you, but I will fight for that right to do it for the rest of my life because I feel alive again. And there was a point where it wasn't I felt dead, I just existed. So, And I've been lucky enough to be able to do that in whilst working with a team of people mm -hmm. who've been really supportive of that and also allowed me to explore this kind of passion and desire to make stuff around learning and teaching better at the university as part of this amazing team of people. So, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Pretty cool. Yeah, right? really cool. And really also cool. so good to be able to identify that there was a reason why you didn't necessarily want to take it straight away, figured out, okay, now I know the benefits, I know mm. what this could do for me and being able to share that with others who perhaps might be in a similar situation. Yeah, um, I probably also need to apologise to a couple of people because I was a bit evangelistic about it too, right? But I just think I didn't know. Yeah. yeah nobody talked piece. to me about it. Do you know, women 10 years younger than me, nobody 10 years older than me. So although I was around women who were experiencing it, they didn't really talk with me about it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I probably get on my soapbox about it quite a lot now. But I'd rather talk to people. Do you know, Davina McCall's amazing, but she's yeah. Davina McCall, right? I think there are lots of us who have lots of different experiences and the more we discuss it, the less taboo it is, the more we can have these conversations, the better. Yeah, so. yeah. thanks so much for sharing. That's, that's a really good uh, topic to sort of finish on, I think. Yeah. Um, I want to just ask you one last thing. You've spoken about your story from mm -hmm. right back, 18, leaving home, doing all these amazing things. You've spoken a little bit to what you do now at Glasgow Uni. Yeah. And if you were to sort of look at that story from start to finish, obviously it's not finished. There's loads still to go. Um, how would you round that up? What What are your sort of big learnings or life lessons or bits of wisdom perhaps that you have learned over the years that would cover it all? So, yeah, interesting. Don't know if I have any of those, but let me try. So I... My mum taught me to see possibility and potential and good, right? I'm a real glass half full person. Um, I'm married to a glass half empty person, so we balance each other quite well because she tells me I'm like Mary Poppins, right? I don't think that's true, but I think I, I, can, see, I can see that. But I think for me, no matter where you are, stuff always changes, always changes. It's the only, you know, death and taxes we can be certain of, sure. But change is the other thing we can be certain of because nothing stays the same. And so, you know, I could tell the story of my life and I could tell you about all the woe or the really difficult stuff or it's how you tell the story to yourself. And it's about where you stop the story when you're telling it, right? So that 
that's the Orson Welles thing. It's like it depends where you end the story, whether it's a good one or a bad one. So for me, it's about saying, what's the, what is there that's good? What can I, what's the good thing that I can find in this? You know, if I open my carpet bag, am I going to pull out a light for this room that's dark? Or am I going to pull out, I don't know, a pillow and go to sleep because it's dark? Like, how do I make something possible out of this? Um, I think it's difficult because I never went, I, I haven't sought out the things that I do. They have kind of happened and not, it's not that I manifested them and made them happen. I don't believe in that. I, I, I've been lucky to find those those opportunities. But I think it's just because I was aware somewhere that I was looking for another one, that I needed a different thing. Um, but I think the most important thing for me is find the stuff that makes you happy and do that stuff. Because if you're happy, then the rest of it's all right. The difficult stuff that comes alongside it, you know, the, the difficult things that happen outside of work that happen along the way, you can kind of deal with those things um, and you learn from them and you don't always get them right. But the important thing is to learn from what you did rather than beat yourself over the fact that it didn't work. Do you know, something about failing well, right? Or something, I don't know. If you're going to fail, fail well. <laughs> well yeah. I'd like to think that I could have done that in my 20s. I don't think I could. I think it was all about getting it right. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think it's. I think more than anything, it's about how you, how do you, for me, it's about how do I tell myself the story of me and what kind of lens do I put on that? And, you know, it needs to be honest. There's no point in pretending that I was perfect because I wasn't. I'm human. But I could look at what's happened to me and be really, or the things that I've done and be really negative about it. You know, I... I there are people who I work with who've had amazing academic careers because they started in their 20s. Or maybe I should have gone, no, I didn't do that. So there's no point in me looking backwards and wishing. All I can do is look forwards and, you know, see what comes, right? Um, and do that kind of with an open, I was going to say an open heart. I guess that's what I mean. Like with an open approach to it to see what happens and know that I might still get hurt or I might you know, get screwed over or, you know, I don't know, what the fuck, who knows, right? But that's also an opportunity for me to learn some more and grow some more and meet some new people and make some new friends. You know, I, I have met people through this work that I anticipate I will be friends with forever. And hopefully I will and maybe I won't. But right now I have, you know, I met somebody today who I really liked, who maybe I'll have some lunch with. That would be amazing. <laughs> maybe I won't. Who knows? Yeah. But there's possibility, always possibility. Um, and for me, most people are good. Life is mostly good. There's lots of bad and there are lots of things we need to change. And, you know, I'm really sorry to all the 20 year olds that the people my age and older haven't done better with the environment, for example, because that's awful. But if my, if the work that I do can help some young people get a better experience of learning so that they can go ahead and they can make the changes that need to be made and they can, you know, solve the problems we need to solve, then amazing. If I play any part in any of that anywhere along the way, wouldn't that be fabulous? And even if I don't, maybe I can make some people think about it who can play a part in that, who can make that change. Wouldn't that be amazing? So, yeah, no Brilliant. wisdom. 
but just a bit of waffle. (laughs) Loads (laughs) of wisdom. Thank you so much. You're really welcome. We're going to end it there, I think. But that was brilliant. Thank you.